Read. Junk. Read. Junk. Read. Junk. Podcast. Read Junk Podcast. With your host, my guy. What's up, everyone? It's the Read Junk Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kremko. I'm back with a brand new episode. This time, I got an interview. It's been a while since doing an interview. Hopefully I won't get threatened for doing this one. This episode is with Ian McFarlane, the director of the Agnostic Front documentary, The Godfathers of Hardcore, who is also in Blood for Blood and has directed a bunch of music videos and some other projects. Uh, We talk about how he got into punk and hardcore, putting on shows in Maine and then joining Blood for Blood. And then we talk about how Ian got into filmmaking. And then, of course, the majority of the conversation is about The Godfathers of Hardcore, which is out on blu-ray now on um, bridge nine records i believe is releasing it it's also on showtime and some other platforms as well it was a great talk talking about filmmaking agnostic front and some other things like that you can subscribe to the podcast at apple podcasts spotify youtube and plenty of other places where you can get podcasts you can also just listen to the podcast at the website rejunk.com be sure to follow the site on social media as well usually just at rejunk at most places and also check out tpublic.com slash user slash Brian Kremko for all my shirt designs. I just did a bunch of cool rejunk ones and I have a lot more on the way since it's tis the season and there's lots of uh, holiday shirts coming out. So uh, be on the lookout for that. Okay, so let's get into it. Here's my chat with director Ian McFarland talking about Agnostic Front and filming. <laughs> All right. So I'm talking with Ian. Um, you just directed, or I would say two years ago, you directed a Gnostic Front documentary, The Godfathers of Hardcore. You also have done some other documentaries. You've done music videos. You were in the hardcore band Blood for Blood. Um, I also noticed that you have the same birthday as me. Oh, get out of here. <laughs> July 19th. But, oh. but you're a year older than me. So it's... Yeah. But... I always, I always find that like my birthday or our birthday is either, I share it with my twin brother as well. <laughs> um, oh, but, wow. But I, I find that it's either the hottest day of the year or the nicest day of the summer. <laughs> yeah, I guess it depends on where you live. Like I'm in New England, so you really never, you never bet on the weather. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> you true. You never know. But uh, yeah, so I mean, I wanted to get into things of like how you got to where you are um like and start from the beginning so like how did you get into punk rock and hardcore um it was you know it's hard to say like exact day or time it was kind of like a slow progression because i i really kind of got into um metal i was really in a metal before anything um yeah because i was i grew up in maine um and and i grew up in a little little town um and then i went to like a regional high school that had like five or six towns all the kids went to that school. So, you know, up in Maine, there wasn't a lot of where I was, there wasn't not a lot of uh, exposure to, to hardcore punk rock. There was metal, but over time and in, in meeting people, you know, as they got older, um, and I started hanging out with some older people and, and kind of exposing me to, to different types of bands. I started, you know, seeing, you know, this thing called hardcore punk rock or punk and, and punk rock in like my, uh, my teens. And, um, and then it kind of just, you know, kind of went from there. Um, it was just trying to get in to see as much and exposed to as much of that as possible. And with me growing up in Maine, going to Boston um, and New York was a, a big part of that. 
So, I mean, what were the first couple of bands that, and like, what grade were you in that you like started listening to that kind of stuff? Hardcore punk rock or just music in general? Yeah, well, just like metal and punk and like that. Was it like early high that, school or elementary school? It, no, it was in elementary school. It was, it was more like, I would say, I think when I was in junior high, I started like, you know, knowing what it was, but not until like middle you know, later years in high school, I started really kind of really getting into it. And so a lot of my friends did too. And there weren't a ton of us that were into it in my school, but there was a handful of us. And then we used to gravitate towards Portland, Maine, which there was a lot of hardcore punk rock shows that would happen there. And then I started actually booking hardcore punk rock shows when I was a teenager um, in Portland and then all towns around. Um, And then, um, you know, I would also, and I used to go to travel to a lot of hardcore shows outside the state and like Massachusetts or Connecticut, New Hampshire, um, some, you know, New York, whenever I could, um, not as much New York. Um, but you know, I would get to know people and then we would trade numbers because there was no cell phones back then either when I was, yeah. <laughs> was cool. So we would trade numbers and, and, uh, and, you know, you know, how landline phones and, and, uh, we would kind of have like a network of like, um, when bands would come through for touring, um, you know, I was, I ended up being kind of like the uh, main booking promoter so i used to book tons of bands coming up to me and, and uh, that's then i just really started getting in and being friends with a lot of hardcore bands ah okay yep um so when did you like when did you feel like that you wanted to be in a band i always did ever since i was a kid when i first picked up a guitar like i started playing like saxophone and clarinet when i was like in elementary school and then i quickly realized i really hated those instruments <laughs> and um, but I still wanted to play music and, um, my uncle gave me this like 1960s, like guitar that the strings were like probably an inch off the fretboard. And I think I was like 11 and I was just trying to figure out what the strings sounded like when you, you, you know, twang, twang, you know, in a little Fender amp. And, uh, I really just was. I remember I learned like the very basics. I think the first song I learned on that was like smoke on the you know water. Like everybody learns that. <laughs> yeah. you know, start to, but, but then, um, right after that, my, my, my mother, uh, saw that I really was into it. And, um, we traded in my guitar, my, uh, my saxophone and, and, uh, we got me an acoustic uh, guitar and then I started kind of jamming on that. And, um, I just decided after that I wanted to play in other bands and play. I wanted to play in band. That was my goal. Mm-hmm. I started playing, you know, so I started hanging around with people that could play instruments and I was taking guitar lessons and I started playing with people that liked kind of metal music and we would have jam sessions. Then we had like little bands here and there. And, and then uh, it just kind of progressed. I wanted to be in a band that traveled. That's all I wanted to do. I wanted to play on, play music on stage. And I really, I, you know, and you know, in hindsight, I think what I really wanted to be part of was just like a community and, 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 and playing music was my, was my, um, conduit to get me there, you know? Yeah. I was the same way, but I wasn't so much the playing in the band that like just wanted to go to shows and other people that are like-minded that like the same type of music. And then I started a, a, you know, a website 20 something years ago. So I was kind of the, the other spectrum of, getting into the community part of yeah yeah everybody has a part right everybody yeah. has some sort of role they play and you get to the beautiful thing is you get to make up your own you know job or your own you know uh contribution and it's interesting because my life in one way or another has been around this community and the people involved in it for 25 years 
So either playing music, doing music videos, doing or doing films now, you know. So when did you join Blood for Blood? It wasn't like right away, right? It was like second album. I, I joined um, in 1997. Um, I actually joined. I tried out in June of 97. And then I actually, my first show was in, I, I, I want to say August or September of uh, 1997. And then right after I joined, um, I joined as a guitarist actually. Um, and then they decided they were going to go on tour. And then when, then when I got, they got back from tour, I was going to start playing second guitar and they called me through the tour and they asked me, they didn't ask me, I'll never forget it. They told me because they, before they left the tour, they told me I had made it in the band. So I was all excited. And I had like basically like a month to kind of get ready, you know? And they called me like two weeks in and they said, Hey, if you want to be in this band, you got to play bass. And I was like, what? Like, yeah, you know, you got to play bass. And I was like, I've never, I've never even touched a bass, believe it or not. I've never even noodled with one, never even played around with it. And, and I remember, I'll never forget this. I remember Mike saying, he says, well, if you want to be in the band, that's what you got to do. <laughs> and I said, oh my God. Okay. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to not, you know? Yeah. And so, so I, I, I borrowed a bass from a friend of mine and I started like trying to figure out how to do bass and. Um, learn the songs, retrain my fingers to do the root notes. And, and I didn't, and I still felt so weird because it was like playing steel ropes. And I would tell all my friends, I'm like, they're like, oh, you're playing, why are you playing bass? And I was like, because I don't know, I have to, to join this band. And, and I really want to join the band. And, but it's like, it's hard. Cause like these strings are like, they're like literally steel ropes. And, um, and I, I, I really didn't like it, but then I really got into it once I started playing. And, um, I actually like playing bass more than guitar um, <laughs> over the years because it was it was just a different monster. It fit me better too, <laughs> so I'm not a small dude. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I hope that answered your question. That's kind of yeah. I started there. So right after, right after right after I joined, we got signed. Like oh. literally right after I joined, we got signed to Victory. Okay, so um, that, that was, those are the two, the the second and third albums were the ones I'm really familiar with. With, uh, yeah, we we the spill my last breath was I was not on that, but I joined right before it came out on vinyl on Open Handed Records, and they the guys put me on the back of it as a member, but said that Gina Bermudez played bass on it, and um, but I was a member because I wanted it clear for some reason that I was in the band, and then um, after that we right after I joined we recorded Revenge of Society, and then right after we recorded it we went on our first European tour with the Bruisers and it was like two and a half months and it was oh, just wow. ridiculous it was two and a half months it was insane I've never to this day gone on a, maybe one other tour that was as crazy as long but it was really long in vans in Europe and we were unknown and it was really hard <laughs> so we were staying at people's houses and just like like you know the early years of, of uh, you know anybody in a band should experience at least if you you know once or twice we seem to experience it for <laughs> the majority of our existence um in the early years did was, you, guys, you know sleeping on floors and, did you guys uh, have like like a driver over there or did you like yeah yeah we had the way you'd do is you'd have like a tour you'd have like a, a, a tour manager slash driver and um if you were lucky enough to go on tour with another band and they were a big enough draw sometimes you get to share a bus but a lot of time those bands that you shared a bus with you'd end up being the road crew um and you know you'd get to go on tour, but it's you know you'd end up also doubling as the opening act in the road crew for the headlining band, um, and we we kind of did that a few times. Um, but 
we had a tour manager and a bus, uh, a driver, and we didn't have a tour bus. We didn't even get a tour bus until like later in those years. And then that's when kind of things kind of changed, started to change anyways. Um, what countries stood out to you as far as like them taking in your sound and the band and stuff like even if they haven't heard, you know, of, heard of you before, you know, was, it's interesting because when we first started, everybody hated us. Like it was really, really weird. Um, especially looking back on it now, because when we first started and we first started touring, it was really frustrating because we'd get like 10, 15 people that would be totally really into us. Like, I mean like really into us. And then the rest of the room really just didn't get us. Yeah. And it really frustrated us a lot. And specifically, uh, Rob, it really pissed him off. Um, and it, it made me mad and I would always like bitch about it in the van and I would like just complain and, and say something. And, and when I would complain about it, I remember then Rob would always kind of bring us back to, to reality. And he would always say like, people will come around. Trust me, people are going to come around. And it's so funny because <laughs> they did, <laughs> they kind of did. And, um, I guess if you stick around change. enough, you'll, you'll get a, fall. yeah, but I, I, I know, I remember, I remember like, you know, for, for quite a while, like they would, we would hear like, yeah, we gauge it within between songs and the, the, the clapping or the movement during the song. And when you're playing aggressive music, like blood for blood is not, you know, chill music by any means. It's, <laughs> like it's, it's, jazz. <laughs> it's very aggressive music. And, and I mean, I just don't see how anybody could just stand there and, and go, what is this? But uh, we, they, they did when we first started playing. Yeah. <laughs> so I was, I didn't start the band or I was not, I wasn't there for the birth of the band, but I was there for its infancy and continued to be. So, and to this day, um, you know, the band is just me and Rob now and we haven't done anything with it, but it's just us at this point. Okay. So. Yeah, my friend Chris wanted to know if, like, you guys were, when the band broke up, you guys were, I think, were recording something, but then, yeah, so, like, well, I don't we, know. Well, we never grew up. We never broke up. Oh, that's okay. the whole thing. That's the whole thing. is That's the, the big misconception. The band never broke up. Um, that, that's never happened, actually, ever. We just would not play. Okay. And then we would decide when we would play, and now we decide in what form we will play if we do play. So when was the but, last time you did play? The last time we did actually play a show was it like Philly believe, or something? It was 2012, I believe, um, because we stopped from 2010 to 2012, I believe. I believe that it could have been nine to eleven. I don't know. I got to look. Um, I'm bad with the years, <laughs> but we would we played in that time frame. Rob was having a hard time with some personal things, and we had started talking again. We wanted to go out and play again, and, and Rob just didn't feel comfortable doing it. And we figured the best way to do it was for, for us to, to go out and do shows. And then Rob was going to stay home and work on some material. And, and, and that would be his contribution while we kind of get things going. Cause we hadn't played in like six or seven years. So to do that, we needed somebody to could kind of fill Rob's shoes, um, on stage. Um, I don't think really anybody can fill his shoes to be honest with you, but, um, you know, we, got Billy um, from Biohazard and Billy came in and, and kind of stepped up and, and did a great job playing with us for a couple of years. So the last time was in like, I, you know, I, I wish I remember the exact last show we played. Um, but the last one we did was, I think it was 2012. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought I, yeah, I, th I thought I saw a video from like Philly or 
on YouTube. It was like it seemed like it was somewhat recent. Like no, Rob. Rob did in, two, in like I don't know. It was, it was a few years ago. Rob did Ramallah doing Blood for Blood songs. Oh, but it, okay, gotcha. Yeah, and he played like a full Blood for Blood set. Okay, gotcha. Um, but yeah, we haven't played shows as the band in in many years. So, okay. and that is to be determined if it will ever happen again. So. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember if I've it ever won't be, seen... But, it, but, but not to get into it, because I don't really want to make the conversation focuses, but um, it, it won't be uh, this, you know, the same members as it was before. And if we gotcha. ever did do it, we do it in Buddha is not part of that equation. It would just be Rob and I and other people if we did. Gotcha. So um, I don't we remember. just haven't... Yeah, so I mean, I, I don't remember if I've ever seen Blood for Blood before, but I mean, have you guys played The Chance and CC's and Music PA and like... The new- we, you know what? I, that's one of the problems i have is i really have a hard time remembering names there's like people in bands that can like remember like the day yeah. the show the play all these things it's all mushed <laughs> together to me i just remember progression of how things felt over the years i could describe that pretty well okay. um but it's like feelings internally <laughs> and that's that's a whole nother conversation but you have people like Vinny stigma who can literally remember a show a date and even sometimes the flyer it's crazy well, speaking of uh, Vinny and Gnostic Front, um, when was the first time that you saw them live? The first time I saw them live, if you ask Wes Icehold from American Nightmare, he could tell you because I drove, I picked him up and drove to the show with me because um, we lived in Maine uh, together. We didn't live together, but we grew, we, we lived in the same town um, when we grew up. So... I remember, I, I remember like the, I remember the first time I kind of heard him. Um, I know it was, you know, in my early teens, I didn't really like, honestly, I'm one of those people that the, when one voice came out, I really was, that was the album that really, really turned me like that. Cause it had like, you know, the metal that I loved. And then it also had this really fast, hardcore beats and, and, and sound and, and speed, but it also had like a groove to it too, which kind of, you know, if you listen, it's like, it's like the, the mad ball sound, you know, and whatnot. Yeah. And that album, that album kind of defined in a lot of ways, not New York hardcore, in my opinion, by any means. And I think a lot of people agree, but it defined a certain sound of New York hardcore for sure. And what it is it even in today in some ways, um, with some bands, you know. I mean, yeah, that their first, uh, the first album that I got of theirs was the Last Warning, nineteen ninety three. I went to like uh, an old record store in Middletown, New York, and called Rock Fantasy, and and then I'm like, oh, what's this one? I'm like, because I was still kind of like in the metal then, so it's like I got yeah. this, and I'm like, wow, this it kind of opened opened me up to hardcore was Agnostic Front, but the first time I didn't see them was until 1998 when they played with Dropkick Murphys and U.S. Bombs for like a Halloween show at the Chance. Oh wow, that's cool. Yeah, so it was like a a memorable show. Yeah, I bet. When I saw when I when I saw um, you know I saw them. Like for the first, I remember the first time I like really like saw them on before I saw a show, um, is I saw the the uh, and everybody from you know our generation, uh, a lot of people remember this is is that live at the Ritz, you know, live in New York. Yeah. Um, and and that it was actually it was directed by a guy named George Seminera, um, who that live thing at Gorilla Biscuits, Sick of It All, and Agnostic Front, and then I had interviews with everybody from like. 
Harley Flanagan to Dave Stein to like, you know, sick of it all to Jimmy G to Roger to, you know, Craig Satari. It was just like really eye opening for like a 90s uh, generation of people in, you know, into hardcore. It was really, really, it looked hard. The whole thing was cool. It was a huge show. It was crazy. Agnostic Front just destroyed it. Um, you know, it's pretty, pretty awesome. I actually, I, I've, I, I've seen all the raw tapes from that show. It's pretty awesome. Hmm. The last time mm-hmm. I, I mean, the last time I saw Agnostic Front was at Punk Rock Bowling at Asbury Park uh, a couple of years ago. But I was just I'm like, oh, wow, yeah. yeah, I'm like, wow, these guys are, I don't know if you were there filming or anything, but. No, I was going to, Bo, but um, I had, I, I didn't need any more footage at that point. I remember I needed some things, but I don't, I think I had finished all the filming. I was still cutting at that point. Okay. Um. Now changing gears here, something. So when did you decide to like leave the band and like, or were you in the band and then do? Did you go to film school or did you just like pick up? No, that's the thing is I think somebody did some Wikipedia on me. I'm saying like, and it just I read it not too long ago. I was like, that's not right. Like, I, I never I never left the band to go to filmmaking. That's just not even true. Um, I never left the band. Period. I've never left the band. I've never quit or been kicked out. It's my band. I'm in the band with not mine personally, but it's it's me and, and Rob. Like we're we're part of it. It's like our thing. But like, I never left it. And um, I I went to not full fledged film school because I don't want to take away from anybody that did like a four year course like so many of my friends did. I I started by going to like uh, night film school at Emerson College. Oh, okay. Um, in my my uh my early 20s because i wanted to see if i really liked it and then i was going to go to film school like i was going to go one of those people that went to film school and went to school in my 20s you know late 20s and i decided to but once i did the course i actually dropped out because i was like i can do this on my own and i can probably learn from more people than i just didn't fit in in the course i didn't like it i didn't i didn't like what was going on with it so i just i'm one of those people that has to just you know figure it out or i'm better by being around people yeah, I, I do better with people that are, are are better than me, and 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 I can learn from. Like I choose to work with people. So so many times in in different businesses, when somebody gets older in business, they look as like, oh, they're a dinosaur. You use that like, oh, they're a dinosaur. I, I look at it completely opposite. I like I go to those people to learn what they learned, and then then put my own spin on it. And I kind of did that with filmmaking, where I started hanging out with people um, that were a lot older than me that were doing it or had done it, and I just started asking questions. Um, and then I started kind of finding an independent film community, and I found it through Craigslist. I found it through, um, you know, different people in the hardcore punk rock scene that were also into film. So I started asking around and seeing who was into stuff and who was going to school. And I started like kind of like getting free courses of filmmaking by becoming friends with some people that were going to school. Mm. And I would learn things. And we would do projects. And then I just decided I wanted to start making music videos because I had one of the things that people that are in film school want to do, they wanted to do so much was do music videos, yet they didn't know bands. And like they, they will work with bands and I would be like, oh my God, that video is going to be, how can you make a good video when the song is horrible? You know, like, yeah. like this bands. But I had the luxury of knowing tons of really great bands that had, had followings. And um, there's a flip side to that because you're learning and putting yourself out in front of a lot of people that are going to paid for shit. (laughs) Yeah. Well not getting paid with that. That wasn't my motivation either. But then it was, it was more of like, I'm putting myself out there and my stuff's getting seen by a lot of people in that audience. And I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) So I'm like, 
I'm, I'm learning as I went. I'm going, learning as I'm going is what it was like. And, and, um, luckily it was like my, I remember my first music video I did with this band called terror. And it was like their first, they were just starting out. And I did the same thing with this band called the unseen. And, and then, um, I started, you know, doing stuff with agnostic front and sick of it all. And, bands that I knew and I was friends with. And then I started doing things with much bigger bands and, um, and music videos were kind of my way into getting into filmmaking and still being a, uh, one foot in the music world and one fit in the film world. You know, I feel like, yeah, I feel like they're kind of similar in a way of like the film and music and then punk rock even, because it seems just like what you were saying now, a lot of these bands wanted their, music videos so sometimes you just do it yourself and you learn on a job so it's like it's just seem like you there's a lot of people that are both musicians and directors and filmmakers because they just end up picking up a camera and doing them themselves well nowadays it's so there's there's you can do so much you know on your own yeah you know because of the you know all the resources out there online that if you want to be a musician or if you want to be a filmmaker, if you want to be a writer or you want to be a photographer or director or an editor, all these things, you really can be all these things um, that, that a lot of people try to do. I mean, I wouldn't suggest, you know, doing all these things. I would suggest try to picking one thing or a few things and becoming really good at and then, and, you know, having fun experimenting with others. Um, but you know, I try to focus on these days on just a couple things and then really focus on, but you, to be an independent filmmaker is a lot like being an independent musician. You have to kind of know a little bit about everything or how to do a lot of things pretty good or a lot of things pretty good. And one thing really good, you know? Yeah. I I took a film class in, in college for one semester and I hated it. It was like my worst, it was like my, my worst class that I had ever, I just was, was not good at it, but it's like, I ended up taking parts that I learned and in kind of doing, I did like a before the concert series, kind of like video YouTube series, like a mm-hmm. sessions. And so, I mean, I, I did have, I have done stuff like that in the past and, um, but I, I, I kind of gravitated to more as the photography. I've been shooting shows since I've been going to shows in 96, 97. So I'm mean, mm-hmm. kind of more of that, but like, like you were saying, like, Oh, kind of focus on a few things. I am not that because I usually I'll get bored and like, Oh, I'm going to do drawing this year. I'm going to do <laughs> right. <laughs> I've got to work on my website. It's like, I'm, I'm stretched thin, but yeah. Um, so, I mean, were you, so, so is that how you just, uh, did the Gnostic Front documentary? Is that you just knew them from doing their music videos, or? Well, I we I'd known them from touring. To be honest with you, okay. Uh, I had met them touring, and we became friends. And then I ended up doing a um, um, couple music videos, and then we talked about doing like something bigger. Um, and it was we ended up doing a, a live at CBGB's. Um, DVD concert film because CBGB's was closing and Roger wanted to really do something. So we, we started talking and I said, yeah, let's do it. So I did it. I had a little production company and then we put it out on my little production company. We licensed it to nuclear blast. So it was like one of AF's last shows at CBGB's. It was one of the two last shows they did. And it was one of the last shows at CBGB's. Um, and cool because Tilly actually fully gave us permission to use Agnostic Front. I mean, I use CBGB's in the title of the release. And it was cool because it was like he, we like went totally old school and like, like went and met with him and talked with him. And he was like, absolutely, you guys can totally do this. And it was really cool. So that was our first experience working with them. And then from there, 
you know, we, I just started doing more and more video stuff with them. And then I always saw that there was this really interesting story between Roger and Vinny, but I didn't want to really focus on the agnostic front aspect of it because as much as I, I figured like I, I really wanted to leave the door open for the band or me to do a film about just about the band, like a retrospective, you know, thing telling their stories of the band and whatnot. I, I wanted with this project, I wanted this one to be more about Roger and Vinny because I figured you, you would understand everything you needed to know about Agnostic Front, but I wanted to tell a bigger story, which was something maybe about the feeling or an explanation into why people are into hardcore punk rock. And these guys, I felt would be a really good representation of, you know, guys that are in it for life, what we call in the hardcore scene lifers, you yeah. know, guys that are in it forever. And I think these guys are really great ambassadors to the hardcore community for all different genres within the microcosms and within that little, within that big community. Okay. Um, I mean, so you're credited with writing the documentary. I mean, I was always curious about like people that are credited with writing uh, documentaries. Like, is it like the structure of the movie? Is it like a basic outline? Or well, there's like two types narrative? of documentaries. That's a big debate with a lot of people. Yeah. There's two different types of ways of doing documentary. And one is they're just following something as it unfolds, like cinema verte, like following it as it goes and unfolds. The story is being written as it goes. This was a little different. Yeah. Like I knew the story I wanted to tell before I started. Okay. So I kind of had to sit down and come up with this whole big idea and then have plug in what I, you know, the different directions we wanted to go and then go after those. So we did, I didn't write for them to say what they said, yeah. but I did Tony, uh, my co-writer and, and I, you know, he came in and he was a co-producer on the film. So we sat down and we basically outlined of what we wanted this film to be like by scenes. Like then we're going to go into this topic and talk about this and then we're going to do this. And then there were things that happened along the way that we didn't expect, but there were certain things with the film that, that, that I knew I wanted to get into as we went, but there are things that unfolded as we went too. But that wasn't, that wasn't that type of film where we just captured as it went. Okay. Um, did you do a lot of the, of the filming and then you decided to do a, did you do a kickstart Kickstarter or is that? Well, yeah, the, the whole plan, the, the way that we did it, was very punk rock and, and very DIY. Yeah. Um, I tried to make this film for about 10 years, believe it or not, and no one would get behind it. No one. I couldn't get anyone to get behind it. Not even they a record label? Up, no, I asked, I asked three that I won't throw them under the bus right now and, and, and say who, but I asked three specific record labels. Epitaph, and I, victory. <laughs> I, asked, I asked a bunch of record labels that wanted to do it, and they said no. Yeah. And they said, oh, you know, no, it's not going to – one of them said, I don't think that's going to sell. Oh, how are you going to tell that story? It's just too big of a story. Or, you know, it's just, it's just all these, like, negative stuff. Yeah. And I would explain what I wanted to do, and no one would do it. And when I pitched the band on it, they were like, whoa, you want to do what? And like, wow, that's really, we never thought of it that way. And I was like, yeah, this is kind of how I want to approach this. I thought it'd be kind of cool. Um, Roger was really on the fence about it because he's always like, oh, this just, just AF, AF. He's AF all the time. All yeah. He's on 24-7 with AF. He is AF. Him and Vinny are like AF. That's all they think, right? 
in every aspect of their life. It's like AF dictates every other aspect of their life. Um, and I, I explained it to him and he was, then he was on board and then, you know, I just decided, well, I'm probably going to have the same problem by not filming stuff and just trying to explain what I'm doing. So I decided I'm just going to go out and put my own money down. And that's what I did. I went out and started filming some stuff. We did a trip and then I, and then after I had some stuff filmed and I could show what I was doing and how cool and how different it was going to look. Um, then we put together a Kickstarter video and showed a good representation of what we we're going to do. And if you watch that Kickstarter video and then you watch the movie, it's, it, I did exactly what I said I was going to do. Okay. Um, yeah. So when did, so when did that, when did you start like filming? Was it around 20, I started 14, 15, 15? 20, 2015. Yeah. We started, um, shooting in just, um, I want to say February of 2015. And then we did the Kickstarter a few months later. Okay. I know Vinny like mentions like David Bowie in there. I'm like, Oh, it's like, that sucks. It's like, it's like dated or you could tell when it, when it was filmed, Yeah, you know, kind of. Yeah. We thought about leaving that out, honestly, because David Bowie had died um, by the time that the film was done, but I decided against it because I said, you know, that was, that happened and it's history and David was alive and Vinny was referring to him alive. So I thought it was, you know, it is what it is. Um, so were you personally filming or did you, you, you do you have like a few people, a uh, few person crew kind of thing? And well, when you, when you, like I said, it goes back to what I said earlier, you have to do a lot of things. Um, you have to be able to be an independent filmmaker. You have to be able to do a lot of things pretty good. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I luckily, the, the one thing that the two things that I've always really done in my past is shooting doc stuff myself um, and editing those two things I really focused on because they would enable me to be able to direct. And, um, but this one, um, I decided I wanted to bring in somebody better than me that, that, that was just, you know, smoked me. And, um, the DP that I hired, his name was Anthony Jarvis. He's a good friend of mine. Very, very talented DP. And he really got what I wanted to do. Plus he wanted to contribute his own style to it. So what we did is we, we talked a lot before we even started about how we were going to make this look, what cameras we were going to use, what lenses we were going to use and stick to it. Plus even down to how we were going to shoot people walking, how we were going to frame interviews, all these things. We designed them all. And then, and then whenever I would do a shoot, I always rent two cameras. And, um, so he would have one and I would have one and he really focused on the high end DP beauty stuff. And my specialty was what I call anticipation. I would follow, I would like go with the guys like up close. Um, I would be like the one on stage filming with directly with the band on stage. Um, because they actually requested that I was the person to do it because they're in a band. Well, it's more than that. It's honestly that we call it the dance. Like, uh, um, uh, some people in bands call it like the dance or the moves. It's like in why, at least with agnostic front, that's what we call it together is like, they said they wanted make sure if you, they said you, cause when I presented to them to be on stage and film on stage and they were like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I want to be right in your, right up in your shit. And they were like, while we're playing, I'm like, yeah, I want to be like the sixth member. And they thought that was the weirdest thing. And they were really on the fence about it. And they said, I tell you what, you can do it. We can try it out, but you have to be the one to do it because when you're on stage and you play in a band, you kind of have this, like, it's more like riding a bike. You kind of have this like feeling of like, you know, where people are and you know, where this, 
the edges of the stage are, you know, the monitors are, you just have this like feeling. And once you see the layout, you don't have to really think about it. Yeah. And I think that somebody that is not used to being on stage might be a little bit uncomfortable and potentially dangerous. You know what I mean? Because my yeah, God, I've seen people fall off the stage. <laughs> speaking yeah, of, speaking exactly. Of US bombs. <laughs> yeah. So that's the thing is like, you know, Roger and Vinny just didn't want it to look unprofessional. Right. Um, and, and, and cause any problems because, you know, they pay a sound guy to go on the road with them. They're paying money, you know, per night, you know, I don't want to screw it up. So huh. I shot, I shot a lot of the handheld stuff. Jarvis shot, but Jarvis was the DP. I'm not going to take credit for being the DP by any means. He was a DP. I love some of the like just interview shots. I think it was like the shot of Vinny and his, I think it was in the trailer too. Like Vinny, it was like, it was like a side angle of, it was almost like a silhouette of just Vinny just sitting there. Just, oh, in beautiful. his apartment? Yeah. It was just beautifully shot. Yeah. Just, Thank you. Yeah. That was that interview. Actually, that's the one interview that was done by another a DP. Oh, okay. um, her name's Heather McGrath. She's the only other person that came on shooting, but she's a really good friend of ours. She's actually my favorite photographer. Everybody should look her up. Her name's Heather McGrath. Okay. Best photographer around. Unbelievable stuff. Well, you're talking to a photographer. <laughs> well, you wait. wait. <laughs> well, oh, I'm just saying right. she's my favorite. And you should check her out because she actually has some really unbelievable prints on her website of Vinny that she did that no one's ever. I mean, she had hands down. She's taken the best photo, photo ever of Vinny. Like, it's just incredible. You get to see Vinny hanging out of his kitchen window uh, with his shirt off with a cigar. It's unreal. You got to see it. <laughs> Is it. Does she do more like uh, studio or portrait or just kind of more? No, like she does both, but okay. she really, she really is good at like, you know, um, lifestyle, which is like, yeah, you know, it in the moment, you know, getting those things. Like how the hell did she get that shot? You know? That's always, I always wanted to do that. Like just be on a movie set and just taking pictures of behind the scenes stuff. It's like, that's, I like seeing that. That's one thing I wish we had. That's one thing I wish we had for this film was more behind the scenes um, photos, but you know, we couldn't because we're dealing with like, when there's a crew of like three of us to four of us, it's like, we're all tapped out as it is. (laughs) Yeah. Financially. And just like probably just too many people, too many cooks in the kitchen. I would imagine too. No, it's really just, we don't have enough hands. Like, like when we're shooting and we're also doing, cause the thing is too, it's like, that was the deal too. Is like, sometimes we would have a sound guy come in, but sometimes when it was just me and Jarvis shooting, I would take audio and he would do audio because the other thing is I'm really, really like anal about good audio on my productions. Yeah. And a lot of times documentary people just, Oh, we can't do that. Oh, we don't have wireless. I have like a, I have a really, really nice package of um, wireless microphones and um, nice gear. And I've gotten pretty good at, at um, audio over the years. So I really kind of, he would, I taught him how to do stuff. So it was really like, we we're a very nimble crew, <laughs> put it that way. Yeah. We could do a lot of things pretty good. <laughs> um, so how, so how many tours did your team end up doing over the years, I mean, was it just like you guys? Because you were over in Europe, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we shot um, this film, Soup to Nuts, um, was shot in less than two years. Um, over the span of two years, we probably did about probably forty days of shooting, if you put it all together. Yeah, um, maybe more. And then um, it was you know over a matter of. Oh, I think it, it took me about a year off and on to cut it and because I edited the film as well. Mm-hmm. So the film, 
from beginning to end, from shooting the first day to actually finishing the edit was a, just about two and a half years. So you're probably really sick of talking about this movie. <laughs> well, the thing is, it's like this two and a half years of actually making it. But yeah. to be honest with you, when you're doing everything independently, you have like another a year of film festivals if you can't put out because it's very expensive to put out a film. I don't think people yeah. realize that it's not just it is not just like doing a film and then putting it out. I you literally you you gamble, and because you're putting either your money or someone else's money up because it's going to cost something. So you're risking that, but then you have to put it out to get people to buy it, and there's huge costs with that, even getting it on different digital platforms. Like I own the film, um, my company owns the film. It is that's where it's under, and I licensed it to Showtime, and it became a Showtime film once we did that because it says Showtime Presents on there, and and then we did the same thing to the Sky Network in the UK. But I still own all the digital rights, all of the uh, you know platforms, and all like the Blu-ray rights and all the theatrical rights. So we can basically, you can chop it up and then you can try to recuperate your money in all those different ways, either digital platforms, Blu-ray, DVD, um, and theatrical. In our case, it's kind of cool because we have so many different avenues we can go and, and do it. Um, it's, it's, recently, we've had some crazy stuff go on with that, um, but you can read all about it instead of me blabbering about it. <laughs> um, there's, I'll, I'll give you a link to talk about, but we got kind of um, robbed pretty hard by our aggregator. Do you know what an aggregator is? Like, so would it be like a, it wouldn't be like Voodoo or something like that or something? Well, that's the platform. Okay. So if you're an independent filmmaker or if you're a musician or you're a record label or a distributor or whatever it may be, to get your film up on those platforms, you have to go through what's called an aggregator. Okay. And what they do is they're like the quality control in between packaging house that preps your content for those platforms in the specific ways that that platform likes it. So example, iTunes, like I can't go to any of these platforms myself. You can go to Amazon, but you directly and do it yourself, but you in Vimeo, but you can't go to any other ones. So uh, you have to use an aggregator. They make you do it. It's like a requirement and they approve. I think there's about five of them that these platforms uh, approve and they work with and there's only like five in the world so you what you do is you pay them money or they take a percentage of your sales once it's up on these digital platforms yeah because they also collect your money and you pay them a fee usually to collect the money or they take a percentage um i went with a company called distriber owned by a much bigger company called go digital and they in my case what they had to do is i wanted to have the film out in as many countries as possible because the band tours all over the world. Mm -hmm. So what I wanted to do was give the band as many places and me as many places as possible to show that film. Um, and if say you want to put it on iTunes to do that, the rule with iTunes is every country that you put that film, if it's not English speaking is the main language, then you have to put it in their language. <laughs> so, um, I what, oh, some a lot of independent projects don't do. They don't do subtitles, or they'll do like Spanish and and, and that's it. Yeah. Um, I said nope. I'm doing everything I can. So I put it in seven languages, and I had it translated in Italian, French, um, Dutch, 
uh, Latin Spanish and uh, Castilian Spanish because they are different. And then one more, um, French, Italian, Germany, China. German, German. Yeah, it was German. It was German. It was German. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it was German. Yep. I think it was six or seven. So it's totally, it's, it's subtitled in like seven languages. And they, so they, they, they took care of that. I paid them a, a, not a small amount of money. Let's just, we're not talking like yeah. a couple hundred or a couple thousand. We're talking thousands a lot. Wow. Um, and they put it up. Well, the whole thing is they put it up and on iTunes and then it goes, they also put it up on Vudu, they put it up on Amazon and they put it up on Google Play. And um, there, I pay them $150 a year and then they collect all my revenue as well. And the first payment, it went up in May and then my first payment for the arrangement that I have them was supposed to be six months after the first date. And that would cover my first six months of sales. And then after that, it would be, done every quarter. I would get basically like my sales revenue. Now remember, they're not taking any cut. I pay them a fee. Yeah. So I was paying that fee and I paid that fee. And then the Monday before the Thursday, I was to be paid a few weeks ago. Um, I received word that distributor slash go digital um, was going bankrupt. Oh, one of those deals. Yeah. So I lost now, now, now my film was, the Godfather's of Hardcore was actually an iTunes number one music film. It went to number one on iTunes. Um, it's it, it did really really well, really well digitally, and um, I didn't get a penny. That so sucks. Yeah, and it's like if you can read about it if you just type in Distribber, Go Digital, L.A. Times. I mean, there's articles in IndieWire, Go uh, in the L.A. Times. Uh, there's there's a variety. Hollywood Reporter, um, this company, uh, you know, mismanaged or embezzled, it's unknown yet. We're talking millions upon millions of dollars. And you can research and make the judgment for yourself, but as far as it goes with my opinion, I'm pissed. Yeah, I would be. <laughs> I'm really angry, and I'm really angry. And it's like this open wound that every time I, I, I talk about it, um, it's like the the, the it's, it's not it's not a band-aid because a band-aid won't cover this one it's like it's like stitches sutures get ripped out every yeah. single time and it's just Sorry. pisses me off man <laughs> well there's, the thing is yeah. it's like there's no way around it it's like it's part of it's what happened it is what it is but the fact of the matter is um it sucks and you know uh, but you know i can't cry about it um because it's over you know yeah so so, you know, just work on the next film. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, and hopefully, yeah, they don't go under. Um, yeah. I, I I wanted to know about, how, like, how was it getting the archive footage? Because you have a lot of that in there, and you got a lot of it with Roger and Vinny, like, and, like, news broadcasts. I'm like, I, I would imagine that was probably the hardest thing to to get because that was, you got to license it and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, that was kind of difficult. Um, it's not cheap by any means. Um, it was hard to get. It was really hard to find that stuff. It, once we found that stuff, though, it honestly changed the the edit quite a bit, and it also changed the um, time frame of us finishing it because that wasn't something that you know I, I found early on. That was all that footage was something I found close to when the film was done. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So we actually changed the whole scene based around that footage because it was so so amazing. I mean, we just couldn't even believe it. Yeah. Um, Roger just couldn't 
he couldn't contain himself. I, I don't think I've ever heard him that excited because it was like a piece of his childhood that was like moving and in color, which you know you don't see a lot of in the hardcore scene. You know, well, how did you come up? How did you come upon it? Because like, did, did you find it yourself, or did someone have it, or did Rock I, I had a couple different ways. I'll leave okay. it at that. <laughs> it right. wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. Um, but I, I knew it, I knew that, that it was done, but I just didn't know it existed. Um, but I, I did end up finding that it existed. And when I did, um, I just, I lost my shit, man. It was, just, it was incredible. Um, so I mean, the way that you, that you shot the movie, uh, like, was there any scenes that were just like one-off moments that you captured that just didn't fit into it that you wish you did, you put you know, you you were able to put in the movie, or oh my god, there's so many men. There's like a lot. Vinny, I mean, it could be just a movie about him. <laughs> there was one scene that I actually there's a different version of the film with that scene cut in it. Um, it's called Lunch with Vinny, um, and it's really really cool on a lot of levels. It's funny, but it's also just nice to watch. It's heartwarming, but it's about. Um, I, I wanted, one of the things I wanted to do was not just do talking, you know, head, head shot talking interviews. I wanted to learn, everybody to learn about these guys, but seeing them do things in their everyday life that was still really well shot and covered really well, not just a camera shaky walking around while they do stuff. So when I was talking with Vinny, he's always talking about how great of a cook he is. He's always said it. Um, and I said, man, Vinny, why don't we invite, I want, really wanted Craig Satari from Sick of All in the film because mm-hmm. he's you know, one of the early guys in a good era of Agnostic Front. And I wanted to do is I'm trying to get people that were, uh, you know, different members from each era into the film without necessarily interviewing them and just putting them in somehow and then forward thirding them and kind of represent a progression in time. Um, and with, with Craig, I, I, I'm friend, good friends with Craig. And I really wanted him in the film. And he always looked up to him as a bass player. I still look up to him as a bass player. So there's that little aspect of it too. But he's part of an era that really stood out to me, which is the one voice era. Um, and I wanted him in there. So what we did is we, I talked to Vinny and he'd always told me how he used to make um, Sunday lunch for, and his mother used to make Sunday pasta before they would go to the CBGB's matinee for Vinny and all his friends. So he always kept on mentioning Craig Zatari. He said, Craig, he is, Craig used to come over and just like have pasta and God, could that guy eat? He'd always say that. <laughs> and I said, well, why don't we do a scene where maybe you cook, you cook Craig lunch and we can look at some old photos and talk about stories. So I decided to take Gal. Mike Gallo was, was um, living with Vinny at the time. And we just set up a bunch of cameras and, and, uh, and had Craig come over and then they just had lunch and they just talked and ate lunch and talked and we covered it two cameras and we wired all the guys up mics so they didn't have to worry about anything. And we just captured them just hanging out and talking. And it was really, really cool. I really wish it had made it in the film, but I had to cut out, mm. you know, a few minutes to get it down to as close to 90 minutes as possible. Is there a reason why you had to cut it down to 90 minutes? Is it for festival reasons? It's for, yeah. It's hard to program films that are longer. That's really what it comes down to is programming, purchasing, broadcasting, all these things. And I had my sights on those things. Once I did the film and I saw that it was going to be more than just, it had, it was going to, per se, I had it, I, I had a feeling that it had a chance 
of being a much bigger thing if I was lucky and the right people saw it. Um, because everybody that I had been screening it with kept on telling me, this is not what I expected. This is not what I thought it was going to be. This is much different. I can see this on Netflix. I can see this on HBO. I can mm-hmm. see this on Showtime. And once people started saying that, I started really kind of thinking of it that way. And then the rest is history. I just got hooked up with the right people. They got behind it. And then it ended up um, sitting with Showtime and then Showtime um, backing it. And like, I can't thank that team enough because, I mean, Showtime. Showtime yeah, they've been so good with the music documentaries. I've seen so many good ones. They really care. I think, I, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not going to do an ad for Showtime here, but I will yeah. say as a filmmaker that having your work on Showtime, it, it was, it felt like winning the lottery. It felt like, because it's, it's different than Netflix. It's different than, than Hulu and, and Vudu and iTunes, all these things. It's like, it just, it's something that I personally, and a lot of filmmakers associate with, you know, um, you know, a, a premium cable channel network. It's, it's an online service, but it's also a broadcast yeah. network. So it's just feels different and nothing against Netflix or Amazon or any of those places, but just it's what's called a premium channel. And they not only were going to stream it, you know, they wanted to broadcast it, which was that's just what everybody wants as a filmmaker, you know. Yeah. And that's just you know, I think I think I, you have to look exactly, but I think I think Showtime has in Canada and the U.S. combined. I think it's like forty-seven million or something like that. It's a lot, man. Mm. And so. To turn that down, like, you'd be crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, like, towards the end of the movie, things get pretty serious with Roger um, and his family and then him having, like, a heart attack. I mean, was that, like, that had to be so weird to, like, be around for that, I would would imagine. Well, that's the thing. That happened early on. Like, and the thing is, that doesn't happen all in real time. But the fact of the matter is, Roger had the heart attack and... I wanted to include that as part of the story that was in developing. But at the same time, I, I felt by putting it in the beginning of the film, it would cheapen it or like make it me look like make me as the person telling the story that I, that I was like just like everything else that happened in his life was smaller than his heart attack. Yeah. Or it didn't matter. And I didn't want the focus to be around like a reality TV idea of like drama. <laughs> Every commercial comes back. What's he going to do? Is Roger going to live or die? Like I didn't, I didn't want any of that. So I didn't want people to, to grab, uh, gravitate towards that idea. There was a couple producers that I was you know, going to work with, but they were adamant on that needed to be moved up. And I, and I actually didn't work with them because of that exact reason. Um, is because they, they, when I was editing the film and talking with them about it, they actually were saying, you know, you need to move this up to the front. I'm like, no way, man, I'm not doing that. Well, like, it was good. It was good placement because it, then they go back on tour and then it kind of shows like he's worried about that and missing his family and stuff as a, you know, as a father, it's like, I, and I, I think it's more happens. truthful. Yeah. I think it's more truthful to be honest with you because the way that it plays out is while we were making the film, all of us were terrified Roger was going to have a heart attack and die, but we weren't talking about it. Yeah. Like we, we all room. knew it was there. We, I mean, we did talk about it, of course. Like I'm not gonna say we didn't talk about it you know, behind Roger's back. Like we, we all talked about it a lot, but it wasn't the focus of the film or what I wanted the projects to be the, uh, the focus of like the shooting be. So I didn't, it, but it was definitely there and we were worried about it. 
but it, it, the way that we edited the film, it kind of is aligned the way we shot it too, is because it wasn't like just right in the, our face the whole time, but it was something that we were trying to ignore because there's nothing we could do about it. He yeah. was doing everything he could about it. We were doing everything we could by having a plan in case it happened on the road, which is something that we did have as a film crew and as a band. And when you're touring with a band and you're a film crew, you know, you really start to get to know people better. I knew these guys very well because I toured with them very much. So, but the guys that I would bring on as a film crew, I had the same guys every time. So these guys really became friends with the band as well. And therefore we all had to work together. And I just felt it would be a more, a better project for us to all be really invested in it, including everyone that was working on it. So you're now in the final stretch of promoting the documentary. Um, and the Blu-ray just came out, what, on November 15th? It did. It came out worldwide on Blu-ray on uh, November 15th. Okay. Um, is there, so for people that haven't seen the movie, I mean, is there any deleted scenes? Is there a gag reel with Vinny? <laughs> no, that, there's nothing. The Blu-ray, I wasn't even sure it was going to actually happen. And then once the, the green light came that it was going to come through, um, I kind of had to get it done pretty quick. Okay. Um, and I had to kind of hurry in doing it. So there's, there's no bonus things on it. Um, but there's seven languages, which <laughs> most independent <laughs> Blu-rays don't have. And there's, you know, some cool menus. And I think there's like, I want to say there's one or two things. Um, the Kickstarter DVD, um, I have copies of some left. Those That does have bonus stuff on it. Oh, okay. um, and then, but the thing is, so we, since we couldn't make, you know, the, the, the actual content on it, you know, load it full. Um, on the actual Blu-ray disc, we decided to do it in the packaging and the offering with everything else. So you can get the film, really cool Blu-ray, you know, and it's it's high quality. It's, you know, full HD, um, you know, with a couple cool menus. But then you can also get the film as a seven-inch gatefold record. And because in the film, there's one specific recording of a live recording that I film at SO36 in Berlin, Germany. And it's the end of the film, and it's also, you can see it throughout. That recording, we put, uh, I want to say, like, uh, I think it was, like, seven songs. Yeah, um, actually, just listen to it today, I think, because it, it was on Spotify, I think. Yeah, it's, like, seven songs from that show, Live at SO36, for the Godfather's Horrible Recording, on a 7-inch. And then the other side of the gatefold, the Blu-ray um, disc is in, in a little sleeve. Um, and then all the photos from this release the front, the back, the inside, the sleeve are all taken um, by a really great photographer, Kraski, a friend of mine in Berlin. Um, and he's, I'll send you the information so you can put him up. He's really, really good. Um, does a lot of dark stuff, but does a lot of really just awesome concert stuff. Mm. And he documented, he was documenting me filming and then the film crew filming this whole show. And I thought it was so cool so he let us use the photos. So it's a really complete package. It's like everything in this thing is from that night and the film is in here too. So that's cool. Yeah. So it's like a really, people are really digging the release. It's like a, it's a really cool collector's item. Um, and then we did some banners and we did some shirts. So it's a, it's a really cool release and cool package. And it's also, it's, it's out on bridge nine records and, um, bridge nine is distributed through universal. So it's all over the world everywhere. And then, um, 
it's also uh, we did a deal specifically with Cortex, Rec- Cortex Records in Berlin, Germany, and they're releasing a special version of it as well for Europe. And um, you can still you can get everything from them as well. So it's it's we have it really locked down and it's doing really well. And people now, as of this week, are starting to get their mail orders in and and people are taking pictures of it and putting up online and stuff like that. So hopefully we'll have a lot of sales for Christmas because now that I'm this is the only way I'm making (laughs) any money back on this movie is this (laughs) Blu-ray. Well, I'll try to promote it as much as I can. Yeah, yeah, please do. (laughs) (laughs) Um. To switch gears a little bit, um, and then come wrap up soon. Um, the, the most one of the most recent things that I saw that you did was the Kill Switch Engage music video for the Single Fire. Yeah, um, that was it's a, such a good good shot video, and it's like the song is awesome too. It's just hearing both singers singing. It's just in a way you shot it, you like the little tease of like Howard yeah. on the side kind of thing. And, <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot. It was, it was. I've done a lot of videos with those guys. They're good friends, and um, this one was really special because Howard was in it, and there was a lot of nervousness around it of us doing it. Um, but it kind of came together pretty quickly. Um, the way we had to shoot it, and the band only had like a certain amount of time. I only had a certain amount of time, um, but we pulled it together, and it was shot by a DP named Matt Doris. Um, it's all. It's really impressive what that video is. We shot the video on these old anamorphic lenses called. They're from like 1950 something. They're called Kawas, and they're okay. really, really. I mean, they're they're anamorphic. They're really old. They have like really interesting textures to them. Get a little film geek here on you. Um, that handheld with a anamorphic lens that old is really, really, really hard to focus. Um, and to do a handheld is insane. And the fact that we. Matt Doris and my AC, Asa Reed, were able to pull that off is mind blowing to me to have that video in focus. But it was a fun video to do. Yeah, I remember to like or seeing on YouTube. I'm like, wow, this is really, really, really widescreen. <laughs> yeah, it's cool, right? It's very different. More and more people are doing that, though. It seems. I guess because well, I mean, that. yeah, because it's definitely something that's caught on these because of technology. But um, some people don't understand what they're getting into when they, they try to do that because it's a whole nother world. Yeah. It's yeah. It's, I guess you have to really know what you're doing. You can say, (laughs) well, you can say a lot with it as like just an aesthetic and a, and a a motivation and a meaning you want to get across or or an idea. Um, but it's also technically, um, it can, it can destroy a project if you do it wrong. Like everyone's squinting and they can't see anything. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, I mean, to end this up, like, so what are you working on now? Because I think you were out, like, in, I don't know, you were t- traveling last week or so. Um, yeah. What, so what are you working on right now? Well, um, I just went out and did a couple uh, commercial projects. Uh, I, I own a small post studio. Okay. Um, so we do a lot of post production of color, uh, grading, mixing, audio mixing, and, and, and editing. So, but I direct a lot of commercial work, but then I try to do a lot of the post commercial work as well that I do. Um, is this another source of income? Plus I like doing it. Um, or, and I have a little more control on how it looks, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so I've been the last few weeks I've been doing that. Um, I just, I went down to, um, I went down to Memphis, um, for, uh, that's the thing that stinks about sometimes commercial work. You can't talk about it until it's out. Yeah. I, um, I, I got you. Uh, but I can tell you this, um, it last week 
I went to Memphis. I was at Sam Phillips Recording Studio in Memphis. Um, and I was able to shoot something really, really unique, super special. One of the highlights of my career, I think, um, to be quite honest with you, um, the, to give them the, the, the opportunity to do this. And um, shot some of the most beautiful stuff we've ever shot documentary-wise. Um, we shot it actually all with those cowl lenses I just like mentioned. Oh, nice. So it's all anamorphic. It's all shot in Alexa Mini. It's it's really beautiful stuff. I had an awesome crew. Um, and that's being edited now. And then this past, the week the week after, I was down in Virginia and, Nor- and uh, South Carolina doing some food stuff for a major social network. Hmm. Um, okay. So yeah, I, so I, I tend to direct, I seem like I direct a lot of food stuff. Um, like, I don't know why. Like Bourdain kind of style show? Um, both, like, man. Yeah. It's weird. I've done both. I, I, just, I just did this like recipe type stuff. Um, like a cooking show type thing. Um, I can't really get into, but really cool. But then like weeks before that, um, I did a, it's called a tabletop uh, food thing where it was a conversation between a mother and a son and the camera's just looking down on the table. So it was a lot of blocking and, and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, movements and then voiceover afterwards and all this stuff. So uh, it was really exciting, but it was food. So the last few months I've been doing a lot of food stuff. Well, just gotta watch out for that, were they? Oh, here's a plate. You can eat that. Eat that. <laughs> Dude, we had we had we had no kidding on this one job. We had six hundred and fifty dollars worth of cake. Wow. That because we had all these different the same cake over and over again, like a chocolate. We had a vanilla cake and we had a carrot cake, and they had to be identical. So every scene would be a new piece of cake. So we we, we ended up doing like I think like uh, thirty five takes of this one shot take just to get it perfect. So we had to go through uh, thirty eight times. Uh, two, no, I'm sorry, it's 32, 32 takes times two. So 64 takes, we had to go through 64 pieces of cake. <laughs> and, and they were each a quarter of the cake. So there was a lot of cake. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's a whole lot yeah. of diabetes. <laughs> yeah. There was a, there was a, there was a, there was a literally a cake woman on set. And that's all she did is just get every piece ready. That was it. She was the culinary advisor for the day. That's gotta, be, I mean, I, I always wondered about that, but like Bourdain, like when, well, when he was alive, uh, just like how thin he was, like, and he's eating all the time, like, and like on these travel shows. And I'm like, I don't know how they did it. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. A lot of these travel guys, a lot of these shows, all these people, you I mean, they, they literally, um, they just, they, you know, they in moderation, you know, right? or they yeah. like taste and whatnot, you know. And, um, but there's other people that, you know, I mean, I've seen it on set, I've been on food sets. There's some people that will take a few bites and then they, 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 they cut. And then they just spit it out or like the same thing with like alcohol. They'll do the same thing. They'll take a swig of alcohol and then like you'll notice the camera will change angle. Yeah. And then then that's when they spit it out, you know, and because, you know, it's also just for the same reason. The reason why you just kind of alluded to is like, you know, people <laughs> don't you do that. You're going to eat all that kind of drink all day. I mean, no time. your words. And yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> and like I said, production's so expensive that you can't have any safety or time issues, you know, inhibit your production. All right. Um, okay. So where can everyone get the, the movie and, and all that kind of stuff in the Blu-ray? Well, the film, yeah, you can, the best place to get anything on it, to be quite honest with you, is just go to the godfathers of hardcore.com. Okay. Um, from there, wherever the film is available, we'll be there. Um, and you can, and it's, there's a section on there that says watch and you just go there and click it and you can order it. We have places you can, so you can go to Vimeo on demand or you can get it through bridge nine. But again, if you just go to our website 
or social media, it will bring you to any of those places to get it. And it will be back up on Amazon, Google, and and uh, iTunes shortly, and Vudu. But it's just trying to get everything um, taken care of because I ripped the film down from all those platforms because I was not being paid. Right. So the film has been removed from those sites. And the unfortunate side is that, you know, no now I have it. to figure out a way to get it back up and nobody can see it that way. Um, and it costs money to do it again. So kind is, of stinks. Is the film festival's season for it over or? Yes. Yeah. The film, fest- I still do screenings once in a while, but I'm going to be, I'm going to be taking the beginning of the year, the film to different outlets and, and, and screening in different cities all over the world, actually, because I just acquired the theatrical rights for the film. Oh, nice. So, yeah. So I get asked so much to do screenings um, and we've never been able to outside of film festivals, but now that we own the theatrical rights, now we can actually go and screen this anywhere we want. And I'm also going to allow people to screen it on their own if they want to do their own screening at a theater. Um, because I mean, it's no different than putting on a hardcore show or punk rock show. It's the same thing. And what I plan to do though, is, is go and, sell um dvds and merchandise and whatnot there and also talk about the film that's cool yeah yeah um i um i was associated with the scott documentary the pick it up movie um that my friend oh yeah yeah i interviewed him so he's been kind of doing the similar path of doing festivals and then they would have other people host host the the movie at various cities and then do q a so it's definitely a definitely a cool way of showing your movie it is it's really cool it's very grassroots i mean film festivals is great because you get the free press of the film festival but you know but the other the flip side is you know, unless you have a draw most of the time, or it's a, it's not a big film festival, they don't pay you any money and they don't fly you there. So a lot of the time you have to cover your own expenses getting there. Yeah. And, you know, we did like, I think, I don't know, it was like 17, 18 film festivals in 2018. And very few of those actually paid for my flights. Um, so I was going all over the world at all these screenings. Max talking about cards. the film. <laughs> Yeah, man, whatever we could. So yeah. whatever I could do to make it happen. Um, it's just, you know, I'm not in this for making the money, but um, I'm, I'm just in for making, hopefully making back what I've put into it at least. Yeah, at least you break know? even, yeah. Yeah, it's not about the money. It's about doing something that no one else has really done yet. And that's done a film like this about this culture like this way. Um, there's been many great ones in the past that I really look up to, like this kind of Western civilization or another state of mind, things like that. American really great Hardcore films. was another good one. Good one yeah, it, it was a good film. Yeah. Um, and then like also like, um, like, uh, you know, but also looking in the direction of like films like 20,000 Days on Earth or Dark Star, like those documentaries are really documentaries that really influenced me very drastically in making this film and what I wanted to accomplish with it. Well, that sounds uh, it sounds like you're quite busy, and I'm definitely be uh, checking you out for future projects. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is this is a good talk. I was like talking shop a little bit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's been wonderful. Like um, you know, you can follow. You, like I said, you can follow me on on social. It's just my name with underscore in between. So it's just Ian underscore McFarland on Twitter and Instagram. Okay, and then. Um, you can just Google the Godfathers of Hardcore and you can see it on Showtime, Sky Arts, Vimeo, or buy the Blu-ray um, for now. So yeah. there's awesome. options of getting it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 
All right. So, thank you so much. This was a great conversation and yeah. everyone check out the movie. It is a good documentary. It's different. It's, 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 I mean, I was surprised how differently it was. I was thinking like, just like the oral history of a Gnostic front and it was something completely different. Um, but in a good way, you know, it's like something yeah. different. Yeah. So thank you so much. Man. I appreciate that's it. That's my review. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Cool. All right. Have a good one. You too.